right, so well, we're back for another episode of Burning Bones podcast after a pushing two month hiatus there. <laughs> the longest hiatus of our lives. Well, yeah, because we only have three episodes, so this would be the longest for sure. <clears throat> oh, that's right. We're, we're relatively new to this podcast thing, aren't we? Yeah, we, we don't know we're doing really much at all, but we're, we're getting there. Aren't we supposed to have some sort of intro, like... <laughs> like Probably. anything all the all the cool people have like an intro we don't have much of anything he's dave that. yeah and he's jacob and this is the burning this bones is burning podcast. bones podcast yeah, yeah something like that i don't know we forgot what we were gonna say. look if you're listening you oh, know goodness. what you're listening to so you're here that's right you're here to hear two uh mediocre laymen talk about theology well actually you know you're working on a degree aren't you uh yeah i am i'm uh i'm working on my thesis for my master's in theology so uh, that's another reason we haven't been recording much because I've been trying to <laughs> do that stuff and that hasn't been working very much either. But yeah, I have a I have kind of a hard deadline on getting that done by the end of the summer, hopefully. So that's my goal. If you don't mind telling our listeners, uh, what is your thesis statement or Boy, your that, topic? Yeah, that would be a, a whole lots of episodes we could do. Um, it, but it's something about, uh, well, my, my focus for the whole program has been in apologetics. And so... Uh, my my thesis is trying to compare or contrast or synthesize or something um, Lutheranism with uh, what's commonly called presuppositional apologetics, which tends to be very popular amongst the Reformed uh, community, but not so much in the Lutheran community. I'm kind of trying to tease out why that is and if there's um, things that Lutherans can take advantage of in that or if we should uh, not use it for some kind of uh, scriptural or confessional reason. So I'm kind of teasing that out and I'm doing a lot of reading of Van Til and Bonson and some of these kind of guys and also looking at <laughs> the Lutheran side of things with Montgomery and some of these guys and talking about apologetics. So, um, yeah, so hopefully in about six months or so, I'll have that um, all done and my degree all done and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure we'll talk about that. Does the time. ordinary uh, does the ordinary man just read Van Til? <laughs> no, the, the ordinary man has never heard of Van Til. I remember, so I remember uh, when, when I was in the Evangelical Bible College, I picked up a Van Til book from this library, and I was like, Van Til, I know this guy. Greg Banson talks about him all the time. This is the father of presuppositional apologetics. Right. So I'm thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to learn so much. I, I crack it open. I have no idea what this guy is talking about. Like, I, it, it's – now, Van Til, did he speak English? Uh. Yeah, I believe so. I don't think he's translated. Yeah. He's not translated? That's surprising because that book looks like it's translated. It's yeah, just well, the works of Van Til that I have. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really – yeah, I haven't even gotten actually in that much to the Van Til thing. But I, I, I was looking for a lot of these books. I have all these books i got to buy for my thesis, you know. And uh, fortunately, I have a pastor friend here who let me borrow the vast majority of things that I needed for my thesis, which has been a great help. But a couple that he didn't have, which I don't blame him for, I had to try to find online. And Amazon had a lot of them. But I actually found a lot of them on the Amazon marketplace used at like some used bookstores and stuff like across the country. And I'm amazed that, that like these used bookstores have this. I mean, Van Til, again, is pretty specialized theology. And in fact, one of these I'm looking at right now is uh, The Defense of the Faith by Cornelius Van Til, edited by Scott Oliphant. And it's actually got a bunch of of a, a dog-eared pages with like somebody highlighted a bunch of things and like um wrote a bunch of notes and stuff in it so somebody actually read through this thing yeah. whoa <laughs> I know, and, and seemingly understood it i haven't read it all yet but um that's kind of interesting so i, I started with i started looking at bonson bonson is is not too deep to, to understand so I, i'm thinking if i read a bit of bonson first and then i get into van till that'll maybe help me ease into it a little bit and then I'm looking at you know Lutheran apologetics and kind of history of that, and if there's any um, uh, faithful synthesis between these two things. Where do Lutherans and the Reformed agree about apologetics and some of these things? And, and there's actually quite a bit of overlap from what I've seen. Um, right. Although historically there hasn't been a lot of overlap in actual apologetic um, use, um, and I think that's maybe partially due to the fact that Lutherans really haven't done a lot with apologetics. Um, I mean, before John Warwick Montgomery, you know, and he's, he's still alive, um, you know, there's not a lot of Lutheran apologetic uh, literature, really. And then since he, since Montgomery, there's been 
several guys that have kind of taken up his mantle and including some people who work at um, Concordia Irvine um, trying to write on some of this stuff and bring apologetics back and this kind of thing. But before there's not a whole lot. So, uh, so both these guys, Van Til and Montgomery are, are kind of the, the fathers of their movements in some regard. And they're, and they're both, uh, Van Til is a little before uh, Montgomery, but they're both fairly recent in the last you know, hundred years. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that goes and where I can, track those things down. I'm also looking for other references to these kinds of approaches and apologetics in history before that. And that's a little hard to find in some places. Uh, some people will go back to the church fathers here, or this kind of thing, but uh, certainly they weren't right. doing apologetics in, in the same type of way that we were doing that we're, that we're doing today. Although there are some similarities in some ways. So, so yeah, I'm just doing a lot of research trying to figure that out and then I'll write some stuff about it and hopefully it'll be helpful to some people. So. Sounds great. Yeah. Maybe we'll have a whole episode about that sometime because I'd love to. Could. I mean, yeah. we, we could dig into the rationalist movement. We could dig into the, you know, all that stuff that is inspiring 18th century um, apologetics. It'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, so, there's so many different rabbit trails you go down um, historically or, or biblically or confessionally and all these different things. And so, uh, yeah, it's a little hard to nail down my thesis. There's so much stuff I could read and I just, I don't have. 10 years to read <laughs> so i'm like trying to right try to raise right. my kids and stuff so and then i throw a podcast in like once every two months you know and maybe make some, some good stuff there so yeah it's been a little, a little crazy the last couple months all right so what are we well, doing today? With that being said, uh, i think today we want to look at roman catholicism we're going to be looking at the catholic catechism an easy topic the roman catholic church yeah just a small That's little right. thing <laughs> just it's like I'm, it's so great because i'm i'm researching for this right I, I, lately and the reason i want to talk about this is because i've been on all these different rabbit trails about the roman catholic church I, i've been really eating it up lately um and, and there's just so much and i can i can talk about this especially as a young evangelical that the roman catholic church especially for us always seemed like this massive beast that had so much going on in it and there's always these claims being put forth, of course, that they have this unity uh, under their doctrine. But when you start to actually talk to Catholics, you see a very different picture being painted. And um, a, a lot of this has led me to, to want to understand where to learn. And when you ask them, how do I learn about Roman Catholic beliefs, Roman Catholic dogmatics, the first the way they point you to is the CCC, the Catholic Catechism. Right. Um, and so that's what I've been looking at. I've been studying it quite a bit. And I think as we look through it, you know, we want to kind of look at some different aspects. We're definitely, I just want to tell everybody right now listening, we are not going to look at this in all of its depth. Because to even look, I mean, we could have entire episodes dedicated to looking at maybe the uh, Roman Catholic idea of justification right. or the Roman Catholic idea of original sin and the fall, right? So this is going to be a very bird's eye view general broad stroked kind of look at what the catechism might say about a certain topic um we're not going to hit all the topics either because if anybody's looked at the catechism for the catholic church it's very fat it's yeah. very immediate it's a lot of stuff going on yeah um i think we're going to start seeing some trends as, as we kind of look into it and read it and um yeah so, so i want to discuss that i want to look into it i kind of want to read it from uh First, we're going to read what they say, and then we're going to kind of discuss it, think about it in a Lutheran perspective, maybe even a biblical perspective, if we can bring in what the scriptures have to say about these things. All right, so oh, did you want to discuss those articles as well, or do you want to just move on to this first? Uh, if you have an article, we can uh, we can start with that, and then we'll get into the Catholicism here in a little bit. Sorry. It's, it's a small one. It's, it's just It totally threw me off when I read it. So uh, <laughs> this is from Fox News. Ohio students suspended after posting Bible verses around school. Her okay. quote, I wanted to spread the word of God. <laughs> so I was, you know, immediately driving by this. It's very interesting. So, so the article reads, a high school student in Ohio is speaking out after she was suspended for posting Bible verses in her school in response to LGBT pride flags displayed in hallways. Gabby Helsinger, a Lebanon high school student, posted a, a video on Facebook Friday claiming she is being punished for targeting the school's gay-straight alliance club. On Thursday when I got to school, she says, I see that there were pride flags, posters around my school, and I felt the need to write down some Bible verses so I could put them around my school, and I wrote them down and put them around the lockers and the walls. When she got back from lunch, 
teacher saw her putting the Bible verses down. And the next day she got called into the office where she got a letter that said um, she had an in-school suspension because she was abusing others, disrespecting others, and showing rudeness towards others by targeting the Gay Straight Alliance organization. So <laughs> I'm reading this. I'm thinking like, wow, um, I, I have several questions. I, for one, I, I didn't know it was appropriate to uh, hang rainbow flags, you know, promoting sexual orientation, sexual things in schools. That kind of threw me off at first, right? Yeah, and this it is seems a high like school, right? Yes, this, Pub- this is a high, high school. school. You're right, right. A public high school. So, so the first thing that threw me off about this, right, and this is not even getting on to the, you know, to the gay straight alliance at all whatsoever, that they would allow such a sexualized topic to be kind of prayed around in schools. Because, I mean, I, I don't think that a school would let me, you know, if I was in a, a high school, would let me put flags up talking about how much, you know, I'm sexually straight, how much I'm sexually attracted to women. That would be very off-putting. They would not let me do that. Well, it's like it's nobody's business, right? Right. It's also very interesting. This article does not... It doesn't tell us what verses she put up. (laughs) Uh, Putting the best construction on things, hopefully there were verses, I I mean, that weren't outright condemning homosexuality, which the scriptures do say. Right. But, I mean... (laughs) More than likely, this girl probably put scriptures that were very triggering to her uh, gay straight alliance students. So, do you have any thoughts on this? Any <laughs> any comments? Well, I mean, this this is just where we're at. Where you know, some some things have the ability to be promoted publicly, right? Like I'm looking here for the article, and, and the the superintendent says that the code of conduct does not prohibit the sharing or posting of religious text or imagery at school. But he also said that religious clubs, including the Gay Straight Alliance, are allowed to advertise during school hours. So maybe their their pride flags were an advertisement for their meetings or whatever. We don't really know all the details about that. But there's nothing necessarily prohibiting putting up religious text or imagery either. So apparently the only issue here is that they felt that she was targeting the the Gay Straight Alliance, which, which apparently in the video she said she didn't even know what the GSA organization was. She just happened to see the, the flags and was responding uh, to that. So... I mean, it's it, there's it, it, there's a lot of things with this and political things that we probably don't need to get into, but we're we're at a point in our culture it seems like where some things are are just automatically accepted and with almost no questions asked in some regard, and um, a lot of times it seems at least as though biblical things are automatically um, looked down upon or or, uh, or curtailed in some way simply because they are religious things or from the Bible. That seems to be people's kind of default positions. And I think we all need to look carefully at not what our first gut reaction is to things, but look at the actual rules that are in place. You know, the public school is obviously allowed to have their own rules, but what they uh, want to allow or not allow, as long as they're being consistent in those things. And um, yeah, just interesting where we're at, where you can you can post some things and other things are not um, allowed. And, and it's interesting too that she was just she was automatically given a suspension without anybody actually speaking to her first and saying, hey, we saw you doing this. What's going on? Can you tell us why? Or asking for any explanation whatsoever. She was automatically uh, given suspension, especially considering this is such a kind of a hot topic issue, obviously, in our culture. You'd think that the administration would want to have a conversation with her first before handing out some kind of severe discipline for it. Uh, and if she continued against the policy, then maybe they could hand out a, a you know, suspension or whatever is uh, appropriate. But Right. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the article that caught my eye this week, something that I read. On to talking about Roman Catholicism. Cool. <laughs> so what are the first places? <laughs> yeah, there's no connection. I just want to have a fun little article time. So Okay, so you pulled out some, some sections of the of the catechism. So just people are following along here. So uh, there's the Catholic catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church, the CCC for short, right? Um, and if I remember correctly, yes. that was that was published sometime in the early 2000s. Is that right? I can check one more time for I think you. Because I, I, I don't have my copy of the CCC here. It's at school. But I have this thing called the Compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it had some introduction here. Oh, here, 1992, it says. Yep. They presented the Catechism yep. of the Catholic nice. Church. And so what I'm looking at um, is this, this compendium, which apparently was produced um, in the 2000s sometime. 
to kind of be a summary of the catechism because the catechism, like you mentioned, is a very large tome, <laughs> very large book. Right. Um, right. Because, I mean, they're hitting on all kinds of things here, right? I mean, they, yeah. they want to look at, um, for one, the profession of faith in the creed. So they want to look over what the creed says. They want to look at, um, like, all the different points of, I mean, really all of theology. You, you have the fallen there. You have the sacraments. You have a... Uh, you have the sacramental celebration of the Paschal Mystery. Uh, they go through all seven of the sacraments because the Roman Catholics do teach that there are seven sacraments. Right. As opposed to the Lutheran, which there's, there are two. Uh, they go through man's vocation in life and the spirit. Just looking at the main things here. They go over the Ten Commandments. Actually, very similar to how the large catechism tackles things. Hmm. They, they tackle a lot more, but, but they tackle very similar, similar topics. Right. Okay, so this, so just so you know what I'm looking at, this compendium thing apparently came out in about 2005, and it has um, lots of the same, I think, overarching topics that the catechism has, and it actually has the reference numbers in the catechism next to some of the entries. So if you give me the reference number that you're looking at, I might be able to find a uh, comparable section of this uh, to either follow along with what you're talking about or to give some additional information that they publish here. And both of these, of course, are actual publications of the Roman Catholic Church. They're not other summaries of their doctrine from other groups or this kind of thing. Um, right. Okay. So we're trying to be, we're, and, and, you know, just to, to let everybody else know too, we're not trying to misrepresent what they're saying here. We're trying to honestly understand what they're saying so we can have conversations about these things and how they match up with what, uh, what the Bible says ultimately. Right. And that is our goal here is to really, I, I want to give the Catholics a fair shake because I have been reading a lot of their, um, a lot of their doctrine and their dogmas. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I think very often Protestants in general, they throw a lot of slander at the Catholic Church that I don't think the Catholic Church deserves of. Now, I'm not saying the Catholic Church is perfect by any means, right? There's a lot of issues that we as Lutherans have with the Catholic Church. But I think a lot of the problems that people have with them are, are really, I think they're distractions and they're just simply not true. A lot of the ideas that we kind of form against them are, are kind of what our culture will say about Catholics. Our Christian culture says, and they're not necessarily what the Catholics teach themselves. So I think this is really good to look at, and especially th this is true with anybody um, our listeners study, and this is everybody. When you want to know what a denomination believes, you need to study what that denomination says. And, and this belongs to denominations. This belongs to people. If you want to know what somebody teaches and confesses, you cannot study a critique of that person by another denomination. Because you're never going to get a proper picture of what they confess to be true. So that's kind of our goal here in looking at this is asking, what do Roman Catholics teach about Roman Catholics believe? Because you're not going to get the same kind of stuff if you study what a Reformed person says that a Roman Catholic believes. You're not going to get the same perspective if you look at what a Baptist says about what a Roman Catholic believes. Right. And if you're going to have a conversation with somebody who's a Roman Catholic, you, you don't want to misrepresent them. Or, yeah, like you said, throw slander at them. We want to say what they actually say, because otherwise, if you intentionally or other otherwise misrepresent them, they're not going to be listening to the conversations you have or the um, the evidence you may have from the Bible that maybe what they teach is not uh, correct. Right. So the first place that I kind of uh, want to tackle, and I think it's kind of a, a good starting place for a lot of people, when we talk about uh, how we view all of theology, I want to look at the definition of sin. And I think the definition of sin is very important. It looks like the code or, or the little like number that they have, the closest that I can give you is 1849. Okay. So I don't know if that means anything to what you have. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, I got some stuff there. Yeah, there's a whole section on sin here. Uh -huh. Sweet. So this is just the definition of sin. And I'll, I'll read a little bit and we can talk about it. So 18, starting 1849 with the definition of sin. Sin. It's an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It's failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. Sin is an offense against God. Against you alone, I have sinned. And done which is evil in your sight. Sin sets itself against God's love for us and turns our hearts away from it. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God through the will to become like God's, 
knowing and determining good and evil. Sin is thus love of oneself, even to contempt of God. In this proud self-exaltation, sin is diametrically opposed to the obedience of Jesus, which achieves our salvation. It is precisely in the passion, when the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish it, that sin is most clearly manifest as violence and its many forms. Unbelief, murderous hatred, shunning and mockery by the leaders of people, Pilate's cowardice and the cruelty of the soldiers, Jesus' betrayal, so bitter to Jesus, Peter's denial, and the disciples' flight. However, at the very hour of darkness, the hour of the prince of this world, the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sin will pour forth inexhaustibly. So what, what are some initial thoughts that you have reading some of those quotes about their definition of sin? Okay, so in my book here, it has kind of kind of quotes from some of those sections you read, but it, it kind of uh, synthesizes them together a little bit. So I wasn't reading exactly what you were reading, but um, in general, I don't have any serious issues with that. Um, you know, sin is, a, like it says here, a word, an act, or a desire contrary to the eternal law of God, which is a quote from St. Augustine. Um, I don't have any issue with that. I don't really have any issue with them mentioning that that at Christ's passion, sin is fully revealed in its seriousness in a sense that it's violence and all that, and it has been overcome with Christ's mercy. I'm not super uh, offended or, or upset by any of those kinds of things necessarily. What do you think? I think it's an, I think it's a great, I mean, I, everything I just read seems perfectly fine to me. It yeah, seems very yeah. scriptural. It seems yeah. like a great, so I think with Roman Catholics, we can absolutely agree. Our definition of sin is very similar. And, th and there's lots more to be said of this, of course. The, if you guys read the Catholic Catechism, th there's much more to be said on this. But like I said, we're looking at a bird's eye view of this for the moment, a more broad brush stroke. We can mostly agree, I think, with how the Catholic Church defines sin. Well, here's here's the difference that might come out, and, and you can see if there's anything in your, in your book you're reading there that, that differs. That seemed to be a pretty good definition of what we might call actual sin in the Lutheran con confessions. Um, and then we also have what's called original sin. And I think when we get to that, that may show some differences between our understandings of what sin is. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. My next word is going to be about original sin. <laughs> okay, there we go. Let me make sure I have the right quote here. All right, so we're looking at 388, a little bit, a little bit earlier in there. And this is from paragraph seven that covers the fall. So we'll talk okay. about original sin a little bit and also the fall. The 388 reads. Yep, I got it. Good. With the progress of revelation, the reality of sin is also illuminated. Although to some extent, the people of God in the Old Testament had tried to understand the pathos of human condition in the light of the history of the fall narrated in Genesis, they could not grasp this story's ultimate meaning which was revealed only in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must know Christ as the source of grace in order to know Adam as the source of sin. The spirit paraclete, sent by the risen Christ, came to convict the world concerning sin by revealing him who is its redeemer. The doctrine of original sin is, so to speak, the reverse side of the good news, that Jesus is the savior of all men, that all need salvation, and that salvation is offered to all through Christ. The church, which has the mind of Christ, knows very well that we cannot tamper with the revelation of original sin without undermining the mystery of Christ. So that's kind of starting original sin. We're going to go down a little bit more to 396 now. Okay. So we're going to look at officially original sin. I just want to give a little context just so that we're not, you know, I, I want to give a fair shake here. Right. Completely. It's 396. God created man in his image and established him in his friendship. A spiritual creature, man can live this friendship only in free submission to God. Mm. The prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil spells this out. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. I, I hear you humming over there. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> the tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolically evokes the insurmountable limits that man, being a creature must freely recognize and respect with trust. Man is dependent on his creator and subject to the laws of creation and to the moral norms that govern the use of freedom. 
So we'll take a pause here first before we get into man's first sin. What are your thoughts on what we just read? Okay, so again, I'm not looking exactly what you're looking at, but um, the, the yeah, what was the phrase you used the first time that I hummed the uh, the, the freely the free submission? Yeah. Yes, a spiritual creature, man can live this friendship, which is the friendship with him and God, only in free submission to God. Right. Okay. So I mean the the Bible and us Lutherans would say that the only way that you can uh, freely submit to God is if God has already reconciled you to himself through Christ and sent you the Holy Spirit so that you that you have faith. Right. right. So so if, if you want to call that free submission, I suppose, okay, but that has to be very clearly defined. Otherwise, free submission sounds like I can on my own recognize my sinful situation before God and then somehow, even if it's in a small sense, reconcile myself by freely submitting to him. And that's not what scripture right. says that we're that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians two, this kind of thing. So, so I, I, if you're going to use that, if they're going to use that that uh, phrase, they should define it a lot. <laughs> and I would venture to guess right. they haven't yet, because if they're only at the fall right. of original sin, they haven't talked about grace and conversion, all this kind of stuff yet. And so, um, that's that's a red flag to me. Yes, and and this is actually going to be one of the biggest problems. And I, I this is not to say anything wrong about the catechism. We're going to talk about what's wrong with it as we go on. <laughs> but the catechism is very broad in its language. There is a lot of wiggle room in the words that they use. And I don't think that this is, I mean, this is just a mistake, right? This reflects a lot of Roman Catholic theology in that it, it can be very loose. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for differing opinions under the Roman Catholic tent. And I, and I don't think that's an unfair thing to say. And I think that's very clear as we're going to read this in the, in the Catholic Catechism by the broad language. It's very clear even when you just look at Catholic apologists, and yeah. they give very different answers for things. You right. look at the different councils throughout the Catholic history. I, I don't think that's an unfair assumption. And I mean, if we get emails later, you guys can email us. Um, what's, what's our email, Dave? Uh, Dave at burningbones.org. <laughs> Going to email us about how much you hate us because we're kicking on the Catholics. But I think that's a very fair assumption. We're going to read more on this. But yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think there's this idea where we see in Scripture that when God gave man freedom, freedom led to sin. Freedom was not something that was good for man because it didn't lead to man's good. Now, God created man good, but in man's freedom, he chose sin and he fell into sin. And there's something also to be said about how in eternity— because our righteousness is going to be Christ's righteousness, because it's an alien righteousness given to us, we cannot sin in heaven. There is no possibility for me to corrupt the righteousness of Christ because it's given to me. It's something that's not mine to possess or, or mine to hold necessarily, if that makes sense. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't originate with you. Right. And so in that sense, although we do have freedom, and we, we want to kind of explain this in fact, but before we move on to this, do you kind of want to explain to our listeners what we mean when we say that that we, because we're going to mention this a lot, and I kind of want to just get our terms out. We're going to say a lot throughout this podcast when we look at this stuff that we don't have a freedom of the will. But we want to make clear that when we say we don't have a freedom of the will, we we mean that in a certain nuance. And, and so would you like maybe, Dave, to explain what we mean when we say that we have a bondage of our will? Right. So, I mean, this is a big topic, obviously, but but basically there's... There's a couple of things to consider. Um, one is that we we confess along with the scriptures that we are not free um, in our relationship with God. The the Latin is quorum Deo. We're not free before God. That all we do is sin before him. Our inclination is to sin. Um, and therefore, we don't do anything that's good in his eyes outside of him doing something in us first, giving us faith by the Holy Spirit. And so everything we do um, is is offense in God's sight is sin. Um, like Hebrews says, it is, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so since we can't muster up faith in ourselves, we can't do anything to please God by ourselves. Um, and so that's that's an issue. So we can certainly do some things in terms of our life um, in the world. The, the term is coram mundo, right? Before the world, we can do things that help our neighbor in that sense, Christian or not, right? Um, we can help the old lady cross the street or give money to charity or, or change your kid's diaper. These are all good things um, that, that God is doing through us, whether you're a Christian or not. But those things do nothing to merit forgiveness or righteousness before God because there's nothing we can do to do that. There's no amount of good works we can do to, to change our offense to God because of our sin. 
And so in that respect, we are, we are not free. We are bound by our will. Um, and, and even as Christians, we, we don't automatically um, stop sinning, right? Wouldn't Christians want to stop sinning? Wouldn't you think that would be the obvious choice? And yet, try it, Christians. <laughs> Just try to stop sinning. Just will yourself to stop sinning. And the fact <laughs> is that you can't. And you can't because you are not only saint right now. You are a saint because of faith in Christ but you are also a sinner. And so we have this struggle, this reality that Paul mentions, for example, in Romans chapter seven, that the good I want to do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ, right? And so um, so in, in our sinfulness, we are not free. We have, this, we have this bound will towards God that we can't love him. We can't do what is good um, in a vertical sense, us, us to God, but we can do good in a horizontal sense. And so, um, so that's an important distinction to make. And so our, our wills are, are bound because of our sin. And yet at the same time, God can still use the things we do for his good, right? That God can use our vocations for his good, Christian or not. And then when, and then when we are Christians, uh, we do good because the Holy Spirit um, produces fruit in us without us being conscious of it necessarily all the time that he works his, his will in us to help our neighbor. And this is good. And so you get this picture, for example, in that parable in, at the end of Matthew where uh, Jesus has the sheep and the goats, and the goats are told that they are going to go to condemnation because they didn't do what was good. They didn't help their neighbor. And they say, when did we see you naked? And, and when did we see you hungry? And this kind of thing. And Jesus says, you didn't do it for the least of these. You didn't do it for me. And then the sheep, you'd expect the sheep then to say, um, yeah, Jesus, we totally know when we did all that stuff. We totally were aware of all the situations where we could have helped you. And we did that on purpose. But they, but they aren't. The sheep are not even aware they're doing that, right? The, 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 the Christians have the same response. When did we see you hungry and naked and this kind of thing? And Jesus says, when you did it for the least, you did it for me. The sheep weren't focused on doing the things that were good to try to earn their forgiveness and salvation. The sheep were just being sheep. And, and God used um, their, their sheepiness <laughs> um, to do the things that he says are good. And so, so with faith, um, in a sense, everything we do that is not sin is, is pleasing to God because we are already pleasing to God because of Christ. But without faith, Everything we mm. do, even if it's good in a in a kind of horizontal sense in the world, is offensive to God. As Isaiah says, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. Right. Absolutely. Amen. So moving on in this, um, we're going to skip over a little bit. A lot of it just goes over about how, you know, sin came into the world through that and that it's very clear that that sin has come in. It's all over the place. Cain's murder of his brother's proof of that. They go on to the consequences of Adam's sin for humanity, and uh, they say that all men are implicated in Adam's sin. Um, that Wait, is, one, one man's one trespass led to condemnation. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, so I, I have a section here. It says, what is original sin? And this apparently comes from 409 and 419 in the Catechism. But it says, original yes. sin in which all human beings are born is the state of uh, deprivation of original holiness and justice. I think that's good, okay. It is a sin contracted by us, not committed. So that's the difference between original sin and uh, actual sin, right? It is a state right. of birth and not a personal act. Because of the original unity of all human beings, it is transmitted to the descendants of Adam, not by imitation, but by propagation. So that I think that's all good. That's, again, a, a good difference between original sin and actual sin, which, by the way, a lot of people right. just plain don't understand, right? That, that we think of sin only as the things that we do or don't do and not as this disease that we have. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, that, that regardless of the situation that you're in, you are born with this disease and that's why you sin, right? People say sometimes, right. are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? And the fact is that you sin because you're a sinner. You're a sinner by birth because you're connected to Adam. And that's, that's therefore the, fr the fruit that you produce out of your nature is sin, right? And then the, and this that's last, precisely a, oh, go, go ahead. Sorry. It's okay. The, the last statement here says, this is kind of interesting. It says this transmission of this, of this um, original sin, this transmission remains a mystery, which we cannot fully understand, which I'm not going to fault them for too much because it's not clearly spelled out in a sense, but at the same time, Romans five does a pretty good job of kind of spelling it out as far as we can understand that, that um, because Adam sinned, all men sinned, right? That we all are born in sin because our first father Adam sinned. And then it goes on to say, of course, because, um, and then all are made alive because Christ uh, is made alive, right? Christ died for our sins and therefore he gives us life. So, so we're dead in our sin because of Adam and yet we're alive in righteousness and faith because of Christ. But Dave, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's not. That, here's the thing. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. It's not fair either way in a sense, right? You might say, well, it's not fair right. that I'm to blame for Adam's sin. Okay. First of all, you have your own sin 
right? It's not as if you have Adam's sin and none of your own sin and God's holding you accountable. That's not the case for any of us, right? That, that Adam, Adam has sinned certainly and that affects us and, and, and related to that we sin as well. Um, but if you, if you think that it's not fair for God to credit you for Adam's sin in this, in this original sin kind of way, then it's not fair for Jesus to die for you and not to apply for you either. <laughs> so if you want to say, if, and if you say, hey, are you, do you think you're, you think you're sinful partially because Adam, your father, sinned and, this, and you're born in this sinful nature and you go, yeah, I'm not really happy about it, but I think it's true. And you're like, good. That means Jesus died for you, right? That means that, that, means that Jesus' death counts for uh, you too. And if you're going to rebel against the idea that God counts you um, guilty uh, because of original sin and, and Adam's sin, then, then you won't accept Jesus dying for you either. Right. And so you kind of got to pick right. your thing, but you can't you can't pick one and not the other. You can't say Jesus totally died for me and that's cool. I'm cool with God crediting righteousness to me on Christ's behalf, but I'm not cool with with being credited sin on Adam's behalf. And again, you have your own sin anyway. It's not as if you only have Adam's sin, uh, but it goes both right. ways. Right. So there's there's nothing for us to fear in accepting the biblical teaching that we are born in sin because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, because because the other half of that sentence is Jesus. And that's all good news, right? Right. Amen. So um, I think it quote a little bit from 405, but I want to read 405 kind of at its fullness because I think this is a very linchpin portion of the conversation in Original Sin. And it reads as such, Although it is proper to each individual, Original Sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. Now, th that already in itself... We need to define some terms here, right? Because there's already a little bit of weird stuff, but I'll keep on going just for this paragraph. It is a deprivation of original holiness and justice, but human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death, and inclined to sin, an inclination to evil that is called concupiscence. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin, and turns a man back towards God. But the consequences for nature weakened and inclined to evil persist in man and summon him to spiritual battle. Okay, so, so let's jump back a little back. Did you hear a big word? I heard a big word. Yeah. And I think we need to define it. Yeah, it's, it's, re, it's reprinted in our, well, <laughs> depends on which big we're talking about. Okay, there's a big word called concupiscence. That's a big word. That's, not the, so. word, that's not the word I have an issue with. <laughs> There's there's one word in particular I have an issue with that you read that's also reprinted here in my uh, my compendium. Um, but do you want to talk, Ooh, what's talk that? about concupiscence, concupiscence, concupiscence first, or do you want to talk about that other word? I, I want. I'm curious about that other word actually. Okay, the other I, word I don't know I have what a problem with. Yeah, that you read and is also here in my copy is that it says that original sin, because of original sin, human nature, without being totally corrupted, is wounded in its natural powers. That's a problem. Okay, um, and it's a problem because. <laughs> Because that's not what the Bible says. Um, no, the Bible says not whatsoever. That you are that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead, I don't know. I'm not I'm not trying to be too much of a stickler on this, but dead sounds different to me than wounded. Absolutely. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't know. If it, what if it means mostly dead? Right. Yeah. So that's again different than totally dead, of course, which you would know if you've seen The Princess Bride. Mostly dead is very different than <laughs> all the way dead. So let me just let me just That's read right. a quick section of Ephesians chapter two here, giving a little context. Um, I, I have you, some scripture two to add. So okay, when you're good. done, okay, I'll go right on. So here's Ephesians two, starting in verse one. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And of the mind. Now, the desires of the body there sounds a lot like this concupiscence thing, right? We have this inclination towards sin. And so they're right about that, right? Um, uh, and the desires of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not wounded, dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that continues, right? So this is a big issue because if you think that you're wounded, if you're wounded, there's still something you could possibly do. There's still some will that you can put right. there. There's, there's a free submission that you can offer, right? But if you're dead, right. you don't you don't need you don't need someone to give you a second chance. You need someone to bring you back from the dead, right? You need resurrection. You don't need to be coaxed along. You don't need to be um, uh, uh, given a passionate uh, sermon or something to wake you up. 
you need to, to be given the word of Christ that brings the dead back to life. And that's the only thing that'll do. Right. And it's, it's not as if there's this little island of goodness with inside every single person. It's just not. And, and I think I, I have another scripture here, Romans 3, that, I mean, just lays it out so abundantly clearly. And so Paul is, of course, answering um, when he's talking about the Jews. He's going off and saying, what advantage hath the Jew? Is there profit in his circumcision? And he said, much in every way. However, he goes on a little bit later in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? In no wise, for we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And so he's setting out what it means for both Jew and Gentile, you know, whether you're born of the covenant, whether you are born just a Gentile, whether you're a human being, what it means to be born under sin. And he makes it very clear, as it is written, there is none righteous, chapter 10, no, not one, or, or sorry, verse 10. There is none that has understanding. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. And in their tongues, they have the venom of asps under their lips. Oh, sorry. They have used deceit and the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Um, destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many ways you can spin that, especially the particular verse that says no one seeks for God. No, not one. <laughs> yeah, no one but does that good. does not yeah, make right. a case. There's if God is all that is good and no one seeks for God, no one does good. No one has any kind of inclination towards that. Then that that is not a wounded state. If that was a wounded state, then people would long for and grope and desire God's goodness. But the scriptures tell us the exact opposite so i i think that is a place where we need to kind of you know put up our ears when we hear someone say that and go especially in the catechism and say uh no that's not the case we're not just wounded in our natural power and really um furthermore right this verse is really talking about concupiscence the, this natural inclination away from god in our original sin that that the, that the flesh desires not the things of god and it cannot understand the things of god it's completely at war with it, completely an enmity with God. So that this whole thing, you know, this whole idea, I mean, th this is not just prevalent in Roman Catholicism. And this is something that we need to think about because this is also prevalent within much of American evangelical teaching. And in a way, as much as people would like to look at our practices and say, wow, Lutherans look so Roman, we go, no, no, no. The ones that truly share doctrine with the Roman Catholic Church are the American evangelicals. Because what is the American evangelical altar call? And, and, and for our listeners who don't know, the altar call is this thing where the preacher at the end of his sermon will call the person up once he's stirred in his heart by the sermon emotionally. And he draws him to make a decision for Christ where he chooses in his fallen state to dedicate his life to God and to become a believer. And this is an inherent confession that there's this inner man inside of you somewhere, this, this inner island of goodness that can cooperate with God, that can choose God, that can desire God. And so really, I mean, we need to lift up our ears and look at our eyes and say, wait a minute, there's something going on here where the Roman Catholic Church and American evangelicals actually teach a very similar doctrine. So yeah, this, this is, is this is something yeah. that I think is a uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, was, well, there's a lot of history in, in what you were talking about the altar call and this kind of thing, and the the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney and all this kind of stuff in the early to mid 1800s. But yeah, it, it, I think you're right that there's a similar foundation here, and and the foundation ultimately, I mean, if you want to get down to the the real real foundation of it, is that we think there's something we can do to bring ourselves or bring others to a correct understanding. Of, of Christ and his work other than his word, right? If there's right. something I can do to to convince my, my friend or the people in the pew or myself that if I just play the right song or say the right words um, or, or follow the magic formula, whatever that formula is, and it keeps changing depending on who you ask, um, then that will be enough because what they need is not just the words of Jesus, um, you know, telling us to rise from the dead. What, what, what I need is, yeah, Jesus helps me and all that, but ultimately it's my decision 
to, as, the, as it said earlier, to freely submit or to give my life to Jesus or any number of all these um, kind of evangelical cliches you hear all the time, right? And the fact of the matter is right. the Bible seems to speak against that clearly. In, in Romans 3, like you mentioned, Ephesians 2, that we are dead. And there's nothing we can do. And, and the Bible gives just a, just a, a bunch of different um, uh, analogies for this, right? You have Lazarus um, who's dead, and yet his dead body hears the words of Jesus when Jesus says, come out, right? You have um, the <laughs> right. You have the the vision that Ezekiel has of the, of the valley of dry bones, right? And that and Ezekiel calls out to the bones, and the bones somehow listen to him and come back to life, right? These are all images of the resurrection that we have because of Jesus. That, that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. We are dead. We are that valley of dry bones. We are Lazarus, who has been in the tomb for four days, and so as the King James says, he stinketh. We are that in front of God without, without his, uh, his spirit and, and the gift of faith that he gives to us. And so there's the, the underlying thing of all this is that we think there's something we can do, that we are not as powerless as the Bible says. We actually have a little bit of power. Like you said, we're just we're mostly dead. There's a spark of goodness. There's a spark of us that wants to listen to God, and we just have to find that spark and bring it out and fan that flame. But the Bible says the opposite, says that we're dead. There's nothing we can do, and we're all in that situation. And so this gets into other things we can talk about another time, probably about what the, the, the Catholic Church and some others seem to say about what about people who are not Christians and, and is there any good in them and can they be saved and this kind of thing apart from the gospel. But this is all at the, at the heart of this, and it goes back ultimately to, to the garden in a sense, right, where, where Satan says, uh, but you can be like God. There's something you can do. You don't need God's word. You can do something on your own, or you don't need, at least you don't need only God's word, right? And, and yet Jesus, right. when he's tempted by the devil, says, Man is not live by bread alone, but by the very words of God, right? We need the word of God. And so this, go, this gets into, you know, like we said, a thousand different directions we could go into. But um, what, what do we give people on Sunday morning? What, what are the Bible studies like that we, that we use in our congregations or in our personal lives? Are they pointing us to Christ and his word alone uh, for repentance and forgiveness of sins? Or are they pointing us to somebody else's smart ideas or somebody else's motivational talks or somebody else's principles for fixing our lives? Or, or whatever it is, and, and they'll sometimes mention Jesus as some kind of uh, addition that you need. But Jesus is not just thing that we need in addition to the other things. He's, in fact, the only thing we need and the only thing that can actually bring the dead back to life. Right. And so um, I do want to hit on a point as well, and this is going to lead right into the next thing we talk about, that you mentioned that faith is a gift. And, and the scriptures tell us this very plainly, that faith comes to us by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, Ephesians 2 will tell us that that um, you've been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Um, in, in Peter's epistles, he'll talk about the like precious faith you've been given. They're, they're gifts that God gives to us. Faith is not something that naturally rests inside a fallen man. Now, now we can have faith in things. Like the fallen man can trust when he sits in a chair that he's not going to fall out of his chair. But faith in the promises of God, to have a disposition towards God's promises where you trust in them, that is something that only is granted by God's word. And that's something that I think, um, as we're going to read on, right, we have grace and faith tied together so closely because it is by grace that we're granted this gift completely divorced of ourselves. But that's not quite how the Catholics will talk about it in their catechism. And so if you want to go to 1,996, we're going to look at grace. Okay. And how they define grace this is very interesting and they talk a little bit about how their justification comes from grace a little bit about how grace works it's th this intrigued me a lot i think it'll intrigue you too hopefully <laughs> all right shoot him there all right our justification comes from the grace of god grace's favor the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call mm. to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature, and of eternal life. Grace is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body. As an adopted son, he can henceforth call God Father, in union with the only Son, he receives the life of the Spirit, who breathes charity into him, and who forms the church. So, a couple things I wanna I wanna kind of hit on here. 
how do they talk about grace in a way that might be different than how Lutherans and, and personally what I would say the scriptures talk about grace? Right. So again, my wording here is a little different, but um, you said something like it's a, uh, it's a help. It's a, it's something that helps the free response of man, something like that. Yes. For one, for one, it says, um, yeah, let me read that again. Grace's favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call. Right. So let's let's talk about that first. Why why is that language maybe maybe it could be understood properly in the right usage, but why is that particular language unhelpful to understanding grace? Well, especially tied in with their with their explanation of original sin and all that, that it's a that it's a wounding, but not a killing, right? That our human nature is right. only wounded towards god that's a that's a big issue so what you need is just like this this divine jump start right you need god just to to take the thing of you in you that's that's already there and just kind of magnify that and then with that you will freely choose god and and freely submit yourself to him and this kind of thing there's a there's a line in here that i think you read at least part of it, it, this is in the justification section but it says justification is the beginning of the free response of man that is faith in Christ and of cooperation with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, to, to be fair, you, I, like you said, you could understand this correctly in the sense that once we are justified, once we have faith, once the Holy Spirit lives in us, then we do. Our, our nature is changed in that regard that now we have this, this dual nature, this, this sinner and saint at the same time thing. And so the saint in us, the new man in us does want to do what God wants, and he wants to love what God wants, what God loves. And so we do, in a sense, cooperate with God in doing good works at that point because our new man wants to do those things and our old man's fighting against them. But the question is, is this, is this justification, is this grace the thing that brings us from death to life all by itself, or is it only part of that equation and the other part of it is my free response or my will cooperating with God's will to save me. That's a big issue. Right. I agree. And I think that's especially prevalent right in the second part we read where it says grace is a participation in the life of God. Now we would, we would define grace very differently. We certainly would not call grace a participation. We would call grace instead unmerited favor. That the grace is simply God offering us the gifts of Christ, God giving us all this favor by giving us his very son for the forgiveness of our sins, wholly independent of our participation whatsoever. Because the question has to be, and I think at the end of the day, we can, we can look at this. Does your participation affect the grace that's offered to you in Christ? Right. And we would have to say no, yeah. not whatsoever. Right. Whether you participate with God or not, Christ has died for you. And Christ has been afflicted for your sins. Whether you participate that, or participate in that or not. Okay, so there's some interesting things in here, and you can jump around where you want in your copy here, but I'm, I'm just looking at it. There, okay. There's some things in here that are really, really good. So this, this apparently is taken from 1987 to 1995 and stuff, and it says, justification is the, and again, they combine grace and justification in this section. Justification is the most excellent work of God's love. It is the merciful and freely given act of God, which takes away our sins and makes us just and holy in our spirit, in our whole being. Right. I don't have any issues with that. I think that's good. Right. It gives makes us just makes yeah. us holy. It's brought about Absolutely. by the means great. of the grace of the Holy Spirit, which has been merited for us by the passion of Christ and is given to us in baptism. That's all fine. But then they keep talking and they mention that sentence that I said before. Justification is the beginning of the free response of man. That's that's an issue in a sense, depending on how you understand that. Then I'm skipping down a little bit in my section here um, to it looks like it's 2001, 2002. Grace precedes, prepares, and elicits our free response. It responds to the deep yearnings of human freedom, calls for its, for its cooperation, and leads freedom towards its perfection. If I'm understanding this right, they're saying that grace responds to deep yearnings of human freedom. Right. And we, we'll actually talk about this a little bit later on as well. There are portions of the Catholic Catechism as well that, that will say that all men, because they're made in the image of God, yearn for God in some way, and that men may be saved without knowing the gospel because they yearn for the goodness if they follow their conscience. Right. Okay. And so let me, uh, let me hit that quick because this ties into my presuppositional thing. So there, there's, again, this depends on what they mean by this, and they're not being very clear, which is not particularly helpful. And by the way, there's no, almost no scripture passages 
referenced in my in my copy here, which I mean, to be fair, is their little synopsis of things, but there's very little scripture mentioned here. Okay, so there's a sense in which everybody, uh, I won't use the word yearn because the Bible doesn't, but everybody knows that God exists. Romans 1 makes this very clear, right? right? That we know that God exists, and, and yet our response to the clear testimony of God in creation that he exists is to run the opposite direction, right? Is to worship and serve the created things rather than the creator, right? And so we, right. we, everybody does know that God exists. And so in a sense, our hearts, if you want to use that terminology, do know God in a sense, in this limited sense. But all we know of God um, is, is uh, his, his, his glory in, in, um, in, uh, in nature, right? And we don't know his, his character. We don't know that he loves us. We don't know that he forgives us. We don't know that he's gracious and merciful. All we know, some people have said that, is that is God is, is angry, powerful, um, and 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 mad at it. We don't know anything that's good about God whatsoever. We don't know anything about his about his character. So in that sense, everybody does know God, but but that's a knowledge of God that is limited. The natural knowledge of God cannot lead you to Christ and His grace, right? In fact, like I said, the, the response of our human nature to that natural knowledge of God is to uh, is to reject it, is to suppress it, right? Not to right. Uh, profess it. And so in that sense, they're they're kind of on the right track that everybody knows there's a God. But that's all the more reason why we need to hear the gospel, because if everybody knows there's a God and they are without excuse for their sin against that God, right? Like Romans 1 says, then, then they don't need to just have their divine spark fanned. Um, they need to hear the words of Jesus so they can be set free of their sin and have faith in him for their forgiveness. Um, so they're onto something there, but, but that's, it's not what the Bible says, unfortunately. Right. And we're going to see this all throughout that, that um they get so close, but then th they fall once again. And it's always it always comes back to this idea of original sin and that they think that man is not fully depraved. And this is just going on a little bit further. Right. They say God's free initiative. This is in 2002. God's free initiative demands man's free response for God has created man in his image by conferring on him, along with freedom, the power to know him and to love him. The soul only enters freely into the communion of love. And that is just plainly not scriptural. I mean, that, that is not in the Bible. Um, yes, and there's an aspect of this that is correct. God has created man his image. And absolutely, Adam and Eve had absolute freedom. They could choose God or they could choose wickedness. They had a, a loving relationship and communion with God. But it was not their freedom which which allowed them to have their communion with God. Their communion with God was based upon their righteousness and love towards him, right? Like what made them pleasing to God was the righteousness that they were endowed with. What, what kept their relationship with God so that God could come to them and he could say to them, hey, I'm going to walk with you in the garden. We're going to be together. We're going to have full communion. That's not based on their freedom. The scriptures don't talk that way. Instead, it's based on their holiness. And when they sinned, they didn't lose. I mean, the scriptures don't talk about how they lost their they lost their right relationship with God because they lost their freedom or some sense. They lost it because they lost their righteousness. They no longer had a right relationship with God because their righteousness was shattered and marred and destroyed. And as the scriptures would later tell us, their will was also bound so that they ran from God. They hid from God. Later on, they despised God. And it's only by God's free grace and his mercy and his promises that he illuminates the dead inside of us and he allows us to have right relationship with him again. But this is not something that we can choose in the flesh. This is not something that we have freedom to move into. This whole idea of, of the soul only enters freely into the communion of love. I, I don't even really know what that means. Really. <laughs> Just... <laughs> it sounds kind of like a like a love song or something. I don't know. Well, the thing I mean, but this, it, this is I think this is so common not only in, in Catholicism here but also in American evangelicalism, like you mentioned, because because it's what we want to hear, right? I mean, we want to hear that there's goodness deep down inside of us, and that if we're only given a chance, then our goodness will respond to some kind of grace or whatever given to us. That's what we, that's what we all kind of want to believe in a sense, because nobody actually believes. Romans 3, like you said, that no one does what is good. No one seeks after God. No one does what is right, right? No one actually believes that about themselves. We, we, we think that we're good, right? And so we make, like Romans 1 says, we make other gods in our image 
um, who agree with what we agree with and who like what we like, and then we can appease those gods doing the things that we want to do. And we think that we've then justified ourselves. And the fact is that God says you can't justify yourself, that no one can justify themselves by their works, but we're justified by faith instead that comes apart from works, right? And, that, and that's another issue, obviously, with Catholicism we get into. But all this goes back to this fundamental issue of who is this, what is the nature of man? Is the nature of man wounded, you know, mostly dead, or is the nature of man dead towards God because of our sin? And, and, and if you start with the wrong foundation, you're going to address, if you start with the wrong problem, then you're going to create the wrong solution to it, Right. Right. And I think there's also this kind of a lack of idea, as we've seen, of faith being something that's given to you. Because it seems here instead of all that we've read, that faith for them is something natural to man that he must then put into grace, right? He must respond with, with to grace by his faith, rather than that through grace, or uh, by faith through grace, that the faith is given to us. And I think that creates a complication because if the faith is something that's inherent inside of you, then salvation is not primarily God saving you all the way. Salvation is God comes with the grace and then you really got to you know, work your faith up to, to get that grace. You got to yeah. put your hand out and grasp onto it, right? Like, like you have this little spark of faith and grace is like the lighter fluid that makes that thing start going. Right. And so I, I want to be clear, right? We're not saying that, that the Catholic Church would ever teach that it's not by grace. You know, that they're not saying that, that you can just do good works by yourself and that you're totally just going to work your way into heaven. They think well, that everything's some, some, given well, to you by grace. Yeah, but they have some allowance oh. for that, right? Like you mentioned before, that there's someone who's, you know, yeah. by themselves and they can follow their own conscience and all this. So there's, they, have to, they have to somehow rationally conclude that if there's some kind of faith in you or, or goodness in you, then you don't necessarily need jesus at least not explicitly given to you you might you might kind of get him on the back end right but but right. what you really need to do is just follow the inner goodness that's inside of you and some people are maybe more in touch with their inner goodness than other people are and some people hear about jesus and some people don't but what's, what's ultimately that what you need to do is just listen to the good that's inside of you and follow that and that's that's a severe issue i mean that leads into basically some kind of like universalism kind of a thing that's apart from the gospel whatsoever and then there's the, you lose the the motivation to make disciples and all this because people can get to heaven by just following their own heart and this is and this is a tragic thing i'm skipping ahead a little bit but if you can get oh, to heaven free. if you can get to heaven by following your own conscience by doing what you believe is good no matter who you are or where you live or whatever right then you don't need jesus right you only need jesus right. if you can't do it and for and if there's a thousand ways to get to heaven by being good and, and following your inner conscience or the teachings of whoever and Jesus came to, just to be that thousand and first way, that makes no sense, right? I mean, just it's, it, it, right. there's no reason for Jesus to offer himself. And I think I don't, I don't know that, that any Catholic that I know of anyways would say, well, you don't need Jesus at all. Even the people who they think are going to heaven without hearing about Jesus, they'd say, well, Jesus still died for that person and they get Jesus merits kind of on the back end, like I said. But you end, this, you end up in this kind of rational thing where you go, Jesus is, is only necessary in a little bit. What's really important, what's really the deal, the, the, deal changer is you and your submission and your spark of goodness doing the right thing um, and so they wouldn't say that you're not saved by grace they would just say you're not saved by grace alone right because they believe yeah that grace comes to kind of kickstart you and to help you like really grace is just kind of that, that empowerment that comes to empower everything else you do right so that you can finally get to there and i think that'd be a fair assumption i can i can talk with some catholic friends later if they think that's right but um i think that's a pretty fair assumption all right so, yeah. we, we've been going for about an hour now um i know you have some more about to, an hour yeah i know you have some more to go at should we should we kind of cut things here and then we can do another uh, part two on whatever else we want to cover connecting some dots sure here. i think we do a part two later but maybe after we do after a couple of more things and we do a little bit more reading we can go over another part two okay there's a couple more things like on the desire for god like th they have a whole portion of man's capacity for god which is very interesting when you read it mm -hmm. um but maybe we, we, we can get on that later because yeah an hour we're killing our listeners right now i mean they're probably suffering yeah like <laughs> both of them <laughs> Wait, you mean us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> it was, oh man, I, I, I want to call out one of our listeners. I know some, I know one person who's listening. Um, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't call him out. Never mind. 
All right, yeah, we can edit there. We can we can give this another look more later. Maybe after we pick on the Baptist for a little bit. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. We want to be equal opportunity, people. Yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, I mentioned the email address earlier. If you if anyone wants to email us right now, we just have uh, Dave at burningbones.org. Um, we also have a Facebook page. I think it's just Burning Bones. Uh, we're on Twitter. I think it's at Burning Bones Min. I think is our Twitter. Um, it's on the Facebook page too. They can find us. So if anyone's looking for us, you can find us there. Uh, if you have any ideas for yep. for uh, uh, show topics or if you want to ask questions, whatever we can do that. And uh, otherwise, we'll just keep talking about whatever Jacob wants to talk about, and that might be good, and it might not be good. We'll see how it goes. So, <laughs> I I tend to have a bad habit, and Dave has known this ever since he's known me. That I just I, I go from thing to thing. I get obsessed about one thing for like two weeks, and then I move on to the next thing. You know what though? I don't think you're alone in that. So I think that's okay. I think some people like the the kind of uh, in depth look at at something, and then jump into something else, and it keeps things kind of fresh, and that's good. So. Ah, oh, wonderful. Send us your hate mail, too. I, I've always wanted hate mail. Sure, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, he's Dave. And he's Jacob. And this has been the Burning Bones Podcast. Burning Bones. I'm supposed to play music Sweet. or something here, aren't I? Oh, here we go. Okay. I like music. Ooh, I, I can't hear you. Just in silence. <laughs>